Hello, welcome to Noise Creators episode 10. This week I'm here with Anton DeLost. Anton is special for us because he's our first Canadian producer. Uh, He's from Toronto, Ontario. And what also makes him special, though, you'll hear in this episode, is he is passionate and he is just... You really hear it brimming from his brain how much he just wants this and to make great records. And I think he has some really awesome insight in that. You might know Anton's work from groups like Intuit Over It, Seaway, Life Ruiner, or Curses. And I think this is really cool. He sheds tons of insight. If you want to get to know him better, head over to his profile on Noise Creators, browse around his Spotify playlist, check out his discography, and read his bio. I think he has a lot of great stuff to say in this episode, so check it out. One second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service, and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones. And if you're one of the best ones, we're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. Awesome. So uh, what's your chain for recording your voice today? Since I'm not actually at the studio, I'm sort of in my home setup right now. But I have a, an old school Digi 003 here, the little console version. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I one of those as well. And actually, luckily, I didn't have to go to the studio to get anything because I have a, a location. Like, I do location audio for, like, shorts and, and films and TV and stuff oh, cool. on my off time. So um, I have a Sennheiser 416, MKH 416 here. And what's better for recording dialogue than a dialogue recording mic? That's that's a, a very solid point that we have not had somebody say say yet. I, I like that a lot. <laughs> um, so tell me about your background in music. At a really early age in elementary school, I was in like, I was super into music. I've always been super into music. It's, it's been the only thing that's ever really truly inspired me and uh i was in i wanted to start some like boy bands <laughs> so i was in like literally like nsync like backstreet boys knockoff band at age i don't know seven <laughs> eight yeah so it was just like me and like four of my friends and we would like we would do like playground like concerts and and like concerts in front of the class and stuff i'm pretty sure i wanted to get into learning like just a real instrument as opposed to just and I was like you know we were writing tons of songs and but I was like I really want to learn like guitar or something I'm pretty sure I heard Blink-182 when my cousins showed me Blink-182 and I was like man this seems easy (laughs) and uh and my my grandpa played uh he was like insanely talented at everything he built a 25 acre resort from scratch like out of like from the woods wow. and, and it's now after 53 years still an operating business my mom owns it now so and he was yeah he was a musician and inventor and so he taught me how to play guitar when i was nine i think and uh, ever since then i started when i went to uh, when i moved up schools i went to um like a performing arts school and we uh, we formed a band then that was basically you know blink 182 whatever pop punk was was big then yeah, maybe yeah. not by choice and <laughs> good charlotte and stuff like that well, well i think that's one of the funnier things about music is like people like make fun of people when they get into music it's like dude whatever's the big band of that year you're like you really have three choices it's like it's usually like there's a heavier band there's a lighter band and then there's like kind of like a like douche rock bro rock band yeah. you're gonna get into one of those three bands and that's gonna be your gateway drug 
Yeah, absolutely. Whether it be corn in Lincoln Park. Yeah, yeah it really is true, though. We've had a bunch of people out who that was their thing. Yeah, and typically, yeah, it seems like those guys sort of lean towards, like, hardcore and, and metal and stuff now. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and that's pretty much where uh, where I got into music, and then and then the recording came a little bit after that. I think I started recording at the end of like at the end of grade eight ish. But yeah, and so yeah, tell me about how you got into recording and how it's uh, got you here till today, where you are. So we were jamming. My band then was jamming in uh, in my house, and uh, and my dad is a cameraman or was a cameraman for many, many years and also has sort of dealt with audio for a lot of years, but sort of on a, just sort of needing to do audio for video if there wasn't an audio guy there. So it wasn't, he, he owned a recording studio, a small recording studio a very, very long time ago in California, maybe 40 years ago or something like that. So he sort of knew some stuff and had some stuff laying around and he had this little Tascam cassette four track and, um, and we recorded some jams and, uh, and I, I, well, I fell in love with it, but also I was like, man, people have to like, have to pay to record, you know what I mean? Why don't I just learn how to do it myself and then I'll never have to pay to do it. <laughs> but it was also a love of it. And I was like, man, this is awesome. And then I got a, a digital, I think it was Roland, maybe an eight track digital recorder that recorded onto like this mini disc thing. I'm pretty sure. And so we would, we would record on that, and then we'd throw it on on uh, this video editing program called Sony Vegas. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did a lot of hip-hop records on that record thing. That's so funny, yeah. So, And that's how I learned to sort of put it together. And then that eventually uh, sort of a mentor gave me a, a really old um, Digi 001 mm-hmm. with like Pro Tools 6, I think. That sounds right, uh, of when I had it, yeah. Yeah, so, and then that's sort of when Pro Tools happened for me. That was about, I think I was like six, 16. And then basically I was just like, yeah, I was having fun recording my own band. And then um, I was playing a lot of shows locally. And, and then something hit me one day and I was like, you know what? Maybe um, it'd be cool to record, you know, other local bands for like a, you know, really low price just to get local music out there because there wasn't I mean I was obviously I was a teenager and nobody really had money everybody was just like working you know part-time jobs everybody was in in high school still and I was like I'll just do like I don't know 10 15 I'm pretty sure I started at ten dollars an hour um just in my basement like such a simple setup pretty sure I I still did it with that that Roland Hmm. maybe maybe I was on Pro Tools then but anyways and then it just yeah it just sort of grew I I guess I was doing something right yeah and I think that that's a a funny thing because I know there's aspiring producers out here and a lot of people they think they have value they're like oh well I got this good microphone so I deserve a lot of money it's like no you know you got to start with a real cheap price and just start kicking ass to get somewhere yeah I think that's what it was for sure so you have your own studio tell me about your studio so it's a, it's an interesting thing. Um, I was in London, Ontario, which is about two hours from Toronto, for my whole life. And my my now really good friend Sam Guyana, who is another producer engineer, who he lived in Brampton, which is maybe forty five minutes an hour from Toronto. Um, we were both recording a lot of the same bands and you know sometimes stealing projects away from each other and it was like friendly competition we had never really talked too much and one day I was we, we both wanted to move to the city because you know that's where everything that's where everything happens if you want to be you know mm-hmm. you, you, you got to go to Toronto so so is to, so for, for for the listeners is Toronto kind of like the music capital of Canada I actually don't even know this I would say it is yeah I mean that or Vancouver now Tor- Toronto is definitely the biggest music place in in Canada I would say gotcha yeah I would say I would say Vancouver is number two there's mm-hmm. a lot of, a lot of cool stuff in Vancouver um, Garth Richardson has a place and so uh, yeah anyway so we wanted to move to to Toronto and he hit me up on Facebook one day and we had, hadn't really talked too much and he's like I was just wondering like if you wanted to you know split on a place in 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 Toronto because it's not cheap and I was like um I kind of have I, I had this like this thing kind of sorted out with this place called Media One 
Um, and it was like, it's a recording studio here, a brand new studio, but it's, uh, it's super, um, they do a lot of commercial stuff and uh, a lot yeah. of like post. I have to say that sounds like the ultimate commercial studio name. Media one. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. You got the voice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they, yeah, so they're sort of like, um, teamed up with like a, the video part and they have a lot of big, like giant commercial clients, like, you know, whatever. Anyways, um, so I did a project there, actually the a Seaway EP I did there, and it was it was I mean it turned out okay, everything worked out well, but we had to since it was a commercial place, we had to track from six p.m. until like eight a.m. every day, and it was yeah it was not awesome, and it was just I don't know it was it was very like corporate. That's that's mm-hmm. a to describe it as and it just it wasn't working for me i think there's a there's a thing that people don't always un, uh get about like when you're in a really nice corporate commercial studio that with like pop punk bands and yeah. or like even just like younger bands is like when they're scared to touch something they also don't feel comfortable creating oh absolutely and this was one of my first sessions where i had i had engineers for me oh wow it felt very disconnected. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And and now, I mean, we have we have interns at our place now, and they're great. But we've sort of we've trained them and to be to do exactly what our team sort of needs. Team in quotes. Mm-hmm. But there, it was like a very like it was like a one off thing. It was the first time I did it, and it was just very I don't know. It was awkward. And uh, but anyways. I did that record and I wasn't like super thrilled on the vibe, I guess. And I hit Sam back up and I was like, you know what? Maybe this could be a thing. Maybe we could look for a place. And it is super tough to find places in, in Toronto that are that are reasonable. And I mean, we're, we're both paying two rents, right? So anyways, we found a place and we were going to build it from scratch. And basically in this building, it's like a, uh, there's like over a hundred businesses in there. There's like rock climbing gyms and, and MMA gyms and caterers and all this kind of stuff there's like six recording studios in there wow and uh, we're actually right next to a recording studio another one but originally it just basically the rooms just come in a blank slate different square footage Mm -hmm. and um, you have to build from scratch and you can do whatever you want in the rooms as long as at the end of your lease it you tear it down completely and it's i i have the same exact situation yeah really 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 weird it is but it's also we were about to, we were like planning everything and, and our build was going to be like, I don't know, we had a budget of 15 to 20 grand imaginary dollars. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were like, okay, we're going to make it work somehow. That's like a, that's, you know, stripped down. Obviously you would know how. Yeah. I mean, for so, so if anybody doesn't get this, that is pretty tight for building a studio for scratch. Exactly. We were going to do like as minimal as possible, literally two rooms. Like you walk in to the either control room or live room and then there's the the other room and that's it you know no storage no iso booths maybe a very primitive attempt at at building a, a floated floor and you know decoupling the walls we were just about to like start you know putting money into this thing and doing real research we were going to hire that guy from uh Saudi Arabia or something and he has he's a designer he's a studio designer acoustician too mm-hmm. oh what's that I- Sam would know the guy but Everybody hires him around the huh. world. Do you know what I'm talking about? I, you know, I don't. Um, I have um, uh, the guy who mentored me is a, an amazing st- acoustician, so I just don't even look at the stuff. Right, but he, yeah, I mean, like you just send him your square footage and what you're looking for and your budget, mm-hmm. and he'll send you blue blueprints and instructions on how to build the space, and it'll be like depending on your square footage and how you know and your budget and all mm-hmm. that. He'll. You know, he'll charge you. I think he was going to charge us like 2000 bucks or something for a blueprint. That's pretty cool. It's cool, but it's, you know, 2000 bucks for a design. Yeah. And it's, and then it's building it. And he's one of the best in the world. I mean, people around the world, the, the, uh, this studio Rose Room, who's at the top, top floor of our building, one of the nicest studios in Toronto, they hired him and it was like seven grand or something they paid wow. him. It's beautiful. Yeah, so anyways, we were just about to build this place, and the building manager called us, and, and she was like, 
there's this guy moving out. He has a recording studio. That's what you guys are looking to build, right? And we're like, yeah. And I don't know if you got, you you wanted to take a look at the place to see if it's like suitable. And then you guys, you know, if you wanted to take it over, you guys could maybe work out a settlement or whatever. You'd like buy it out from him basically. And we we're like, uh, okay, yeah, we'll take a look at it for sure. This could be a potential miracle. We looked at the place and we were like, holy shit, this is like easily like a thirty. $35,000 build. There's like a hallway, which is now a lounge, the control room, live room, and ISO booth, which is a giant ISO booth, which we're actually going to make um, like a an edit suite, like a mm. view. Wow. Yeah. That's a and, big ISO booth. And a, yeah. And a, and, a, and a floated floor. And uh, they did like a really good job. And apparently this place was built in the 80s and it's just been sort of handed down constantly. The guy didn't ask for anything. He asked for, I think, 250 bucks or, no, 150 bucks for the uh, AC unit. And we were like, this is incredible. We were like, mm. if he asked like five grand just to take it over, we'd 100% be down. And he asked for 150 bucks because the AC unit was like brand new. Wow. So yeah, that's how we got the studio. And then we did, then we put like four grand into it for renovations and stuff because it looked like a dungeon. It had this like, uh, this absorber above us. I, I guess it's like a cloud thing, but it yeah. was, but it was like a, a key, like a big box, like a rectangular box that we called the lobster trap because it, <laughs> it just, it just looked like you would trap lobsters with it. Nice. And so yeah, and, and it looked like it was a very hippie place. Like the walls were orange, bright orange, and bright blue. Wow, that's uh, something. What were they thinking? So anyways. We, well, we know what they were thinking if they were hippies. <laughs> and so we put a lot into it, and it's now our space, and we we lucked out pretty hard. So Yeah, that's great. We, yeah, so Sam and I, we still have our own projects, and we do our own stuff. We rarely work together on projects, but we've become really good friends. And, yeah, we basically just share the space, share the gear, and we're constantly rotating gear because, you know, who doesn't if you're a yeah. – engineer yeah it, it works out we basically just have a google calendar thing and first come first serve on the dates nice that works yeah so, so tell me something that makes your studio unique probably that we we both operate it i think that's really cool a lot of like a lot of you know producer engineers who sort of have like a small to medium setup don't work at like a big studio it's it's just them or like them and maybe you know an intern or two or an assistant and I think this is cool because it's like we both have our own we both have our own businesses, but we can we constantly are are both in there and you know bouncing ideas off each other, constantly bouncing mixes off each other at the studio, mm. and you know sitting in on on each other's projects sometimes. And and now we just actually we just got asked to do a full length together. Oh wow! Which is really cool. And I, I'm not sure how that's going to work budget-wise, mm. but I think maybe we'll just split up. You know, we were thinking I would produce an engineer and he would mix because he's he's trying to do more mixing these days. So yeah, I think that's really cool. Yeah, that's really awesome. Tell me about the coolest piece of gear your studio has. I mean, we're both young guys and we've uh, accumulated a lot of stuff, but obviously, cool gear comes with a big price tag. Mm -hmm. Or, or what you're enthusiastic about at the moment. Yeah, you know what? He he did pick up, it was a really great deal. He picked up a uh, a vintage U87. Oh, nice, yeah. From like, and it, sa it says on it, like, made in Western Germany. and says, like, the the serial number from, like, and you can tell what, when it was made by the serial number. Mm -hmm. and they found, uh, Sam found out that it was, like, mid-70s. Oh, wow. So, and it's, it's pretty beat up, and it, and it sounds great, so... I would say that's that's pretty dang cool. Yeah, I, I I'm I'm seconding that one. That's awesome. Yeah, so, and I I have a, a regular U87 AI. I think mm -hmm. personally, I think they sound pretty close. Yeah, um, I have to say I haven't heard. It's not like some of the other things, like four fourteens, where they're like night right. and day between each one. Like vastly different. It's, yeah. yeah, it's like you might as not well not even say it's the same microphone. It's like oh, it's a bright microphone, but U87s they have a sound. Absolutely. Yeah. What instruments do you play? So I started out playing guitar, mm -hmm. um, and so, well, actually, I, technically, I started out singing, um, and then I started playing guitar, and then I started playing drums. I just started um, like teaching myself how to play drums. My mom, so I told you about my grandpa yes. earlier. He taught his three daughters when they were kids to be in a band. <laughs> so they were all in a band together. So my mom was the drummer. Mm -hmm. 
and my two aunts played the melodica. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's what I played that at a band for a while too. Yeah. So so. I mean, she stopped playing music a long time ago, but she still had like her very first drum set, which is now on the wall in my parents' house. Like it's so small that it's literally mounted on the wall. Um, it's like a kick drum with like a cymbal attached and like a a tom attached or something. Like it's it's ridiculous. But I'm pretty sure I I just hit that sometime like a couple times. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. And I was starting to pl- like I was starting to build my own drum kits with like like empty coffee containers and like Tupperware and stuff. And I was like, man, I'm actually kind of like getting the hang of this. And obviously having loved Blink-182 when I was a kid, Travis Barker was extremely influential on me. Just drummed on my lap and drummed all the time and got my own drum kit uh, shortly after that and uh, and moved on. And then um, started playing drums for the school, you know, our not the orchestra, but um, each class in the School for the Arts, you had to be in, like, you were either in winds or strings, and I was in winds, and but I, but I played uh, drums in it, so that kept me going, and, and then also playing guitar in my band, and, and then sort of um, went to bass also, and so, yeah, pretty much all the, the main rock instruments, I guess. Nice. That's helpful. Yeah, Absolutely. So we have this thing, like we kind of say, like on the podcast is like, all right, so on one side of the spectrum, you have like a Steve Albini who really doesn't get involved in production or anything really past telling you what takes are. He's never going to get involved in your songwriting. And then you have like a John Feldman who goes in and totally takes apart your songs and rewrites them with you. Where do you see yourself on that spectrum most of the time? So it's funny you mentioned John Feldman because mm-hmm. I'm giant john feldman fan mm-hmm. mainly because of the used yeah that, that record was a game changer it's it's incredible I've, I've been listening to it more and more i mean i used to be super into the used it was like after blink after that sort of era it mm-hmm. went to the used and then you know that and for from first to last and all those bands and and i never really appreciated the the production when i was a kid mm-hmm. and now i'm getting back into it and listening to it i'm like man if i were to ever hire somebody to to produce my record, it would be John Feldman, no questions asked. And my band isn't very, you know, we're not like pop punk or anything, but we're, there's only so many guys that, or so many records I listen to, and I'm like, I could never, ever think of that. Mm. Like that kind of sound, I, or that kind of, those drum sounds, or, you know, brushes and stand-up bass in like a screamo band. Mm-hmm. It's, I don't know. I, I think he's insanely talented. Yeah, I, I it, I think there there is that interesting thing of like um you know like you, you watch a Christopher Nolan movie and you think about how many other directors would never have the imagination to think of so many of the details and absolutely. he's that with like pop punk production. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of the question, I would mm-hmm. say I get involved, pretty involved, but not so much that I lose sight of my role. Um if that makes sense. So I feel like if you're you can only hear something for the first time once. Mm-hmm. And that first time or first couple times is the most integral, important listen through that you can have as a producer or a mixer even because that's how everybody else is going to hear it for the first time. Mm-hmm. So if you get too involved in songwriting, you're going to start, personally, I think you might start lacking on the production end mm-hmm. and you know, hearing things being like, oh, this should definitely be, be here. You're going to start thinking more as a songwriter. And I think they're they're pretty different things and a lot of times sort of get clumped together. And, and John Feldman does a really good job at doing both at once. And so don't get me wrong, I, I, I go in and I strip parts, I strip sections, I put in new, new sections, new parts, you know, write different melodies, write 95% of the time, write bands harmonies because a lot of times bands don't know how to do harmonies for some yes, reason. Uh, that, 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 if you work in pop punk emo... Yeah, that is that is part of the job, mm-hmm. and I and I really I give my my elementary school a lot of credit for for teaching us so much music and and music theory and it's basically when I listen to music nowadays I just sing the harmonies to it mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't sing the melody it's it's pretty strange That's interesting um, yeah and so does Sam actually it's it's funny um, yeah and it's and it's almost annoying if we're listening to something together we're both singing the harmony to it even if it's not there. It's That's just the funny. harmony that we think should be there. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I do a lot of that kind of reconstructing stuff, but I typically wouldn't 
you know, wouldn't hear a verse and be like, I don't like the... I mean, yeah, I would. I would hear the verse and be like, well, it's a kind of not great verse. But I wouldn't rewrite it. Mm-hmm. I would say, I don't like the verse. This is why I don't like the verse. You should consider rewriting it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, make it this sort of feel more like this. Or, you know, it was too... It's too wordy. It's not wordy enough. It's it's repetitive whatever, but I won't go in and actually do it for him. I might assist and, you know, if they're like, um, this band I just worked with, Curses, Martin Broda is the, the singer-guitarist and he writes all the lyrics and uh, I really loved working with him because he would trust me so much if I even as much just hinted that I wasn't feeling a verse or, or a chorus or whatever, he'd be like, oh, okay, let's rewrite it then. Like Nice. And, and I love that because so many bands are stuck with, you know, demoitis or just in love with their songs mm-hmm. and don't try. I mean, why did you hire me? You know what I mean? Yes. I, I, it's funny. You're hitting on two themes. That I think up a while, like, you know, the first thing with that hearing the first time, like Greg Wells, the producer, I was like that great saying that you can, you know, the hardest part of record production is that you can never hear a song the way a first listener hears it. Exactly. And Dave Sardi has that great saying of like, uh, that it's your job to be the first listener to a song and give feedback as an objective perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I will go as far as to genuinely trust the opinion of my girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And if I show her a mix or I show her a song or whatever, and I'll just say, you know, what do you think? Was there anything that stood out to you in a you know, positive or a negative way? Mm-hmm. And, you know, typically if she says something like, Obviously, she will say it in a layman's terms because she she's not she doesn't do this for a living. But she'll say something like, "Oh, it sounds cluttered," or "It sounds like there's like a pillow over it." I can dissect that and you know put it to to a technical thing and be like, "Well, it means you know probably that the vocals aren't loud enough because cluttered will probably mean that because she wants to hear vocals. She's like, you know, a 24 year old female." Mm-hmm. She's listening for vocals. 95% of the world listens for vocals. Agreed. Yeah. So as, prof- I mean, I'm a professional and I do this for a living, but I don't, I don't neglect somebody who is on the opposite spectrum any less because they're an average listener and these, this kind of, this music is going out to average listeners and their opinion matters extremely. So that's, yeah, mm-hmm. I, that's, that's sort of my two cents on that matter. Nice. So the next question is, what do you bring to records most often? I would say, honestly, I would say creativeness. Well, okay, so hate's a, a very strong word, but it's it's very hard for me to get into music nowadays. I find it extremely rare to, to hear a new band, um, especially like a new pop punk band or punk rock band, and be blown away by the band, the, the, the production, the songs, the recordings. And it's because... I think so many bands nowadays are are influenced by other bands, other new bands that are that are doing the same thing. I think I, th- I think that's a, a really interesting point. Is that I, I'm actually shocked. Um, you know, as somebody who's been producing pop punk for 20 years, it's like I can't believe how many bands now. Like it used to be, they'd be influenced by more classical bands in the right. genre, and now it's like, oh, you're like all you listen to is the band that came out with a record. Exactly, album. and it's really and there's weird. no. I think the creativity is so limited if you do that. And I 100%. And, and it's hard to say, you know, listen to old stuff if you mm. if you're just not into it because I mean, I, I okay, so a mentor of mine when I was growing up was ja- um, Garth Richardson, Jack Richardson's son. Uh-huh. And um, for people for people who don't know Garth, Garth is first rage against the machine record. Uh, Nickelback for some Canadian Oh yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, who else did he do? Uh, he did that big Atreyu yeah, record. Well. Uh, Jesus Lizard. Lots of cool. I mean, and this is also we should just say, Garth is like an esteemed, esteemed producer in the in that major label of rock Alice era. There, yeah. And I would also say this among producers, especially when I was growing up in a pre kind of internet big era of this stuff um garth was always kind of known as like a guy who really knew his shit too i mean growing up in with that kind of with that kind of family is pretty i think you you would have your chops together i think um yes but yeah so 
Um, where was I going with this? Right, he was a mentor. And because, I mean, we had this connection because my dad did a, uh, a documentary. He shot a documentary on Jack, on his dad. So, and uh, yeah, he interviewed a lot of a lot of pretty high up people and we got to know uh, Garth a little bit and um, it was mainly my mom talking talking to him and and she sent him some of my band stuff I think at the time and said you know is there anything any kind of advice you can give these guys or whatever and I think the well, either the only thing or one of the, the main things he said was listen to the classics trust listen oh. to the old stuff See where your the bands you love were influenced, because that's where they're getting all their creativity. They're not. I mean, yeah, you can get you can get your influence from these guys. You can love these guys' music, but that's where that came from. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, it's funny. So my new book is on uh, a lot of this stuff, and I think there is this thing that I see over and over again with the hyper-creative people. It's not that you you don't listen to new music. It's that you also have the gumption to go back and see where on that tree they were inspired and pick up the things from it as well. Even if you're not going to listen to that record 20 times like you do that new stuff, you go back and you find Absolutely, stuff. absolutely. And when I heard that, I was like, well... I don't really like. I don't really like it. You know what I mean. I'm. Mm. I'm. I. I want to like it, and I just don't. I mean, I, I don't. I never liked like Led Zeppelin or, God forbid, I say the Beatles. I, I'm right there with and you. So. It's not that I don't. I don't appreciate or I don't. You know, I, they they come on and I'm like, ugh. You know, I, I just I just can't get into them. I wouldn't put them on my iPod and listen while I go to the gym. You know what I mean? Or while I do anything really. However. I, I appreciate everything and I and I acknowledge everything they've done for music. And what I think in the in the big picture, what he was saying was listen to the stuff that created something, started mm -hmm. something. So when you think about like I'm I'm super, super influenced by really early emo. Like I love mm -hmm. the year nineteen ninety nine. I think so many incredible records came out in 1999. It's funny you called that early emo. To me, early emo is like... No, nice. and that's true. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's so many... Yeah, that's true. I mean, I sort of, like, put two things together there. But Clarity from Jimmy World came out in 1999. Yeah. And that... And, and actually, American Football's full length came out in 1999 as well. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of stuff. Blue uh, by um, Third Eye Blind and... What Weezer? I'm pretty sure a Weezer record came out then too. Well, I thought that would have been the dark period. I could be wrong though. I'm bad with that stuff. But uh, yeah, it's it is funny. Clarity is like uh, it, it's almost like a joke on this podcast. It's like if there's like uh, it seems like it's a screening thing. Like you you don't get on this podcast unless you're going to say Clarity <laughs> had a big effect on you. <laughs> Even if it's describing the type of sound something has, well, that's some yeah, I, it's a you know sort of record that changed me as well. It's also unfortunate because Mark Trombito recorded it. It's not 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 in the Absolutely. game anymore. And I wonder how music. I mean, that kind of music would be nowadays if he was still around. So you were making a point though about going back and what you bring with creativity to it, and how right. uh, going back to the stuff brings stuff right. To the so table. I think a lot of producers and engineers nowadays don't. I mean, they, I think they understand, but they don't put forth the fact that songwriting is the only thing that matters in the grand scheme of things. The song is what matters. I don't care if you have a great song, uh, sorry, a bad song recorded great, because still nobody's going to listen to it. But if you have a great song recorded not so well, people are still going to love it. Not that, not that I'm saying I don't put as much work into sonically my recordings. I think what matters is the sonic footprint, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Something that sets your record or makes a certain record sound like that record and only that record. I think a lot of guys just rely on a, uh, on a template nowadays. I strongly agree or just... Such generic tools that there's never going to be any character. Absolutely, there. they'll just use the same setup every single record, or the same amps, the same drums. And I will—I mean, I only have a certain amount of gear in my studio and a certain amount of instruments in my studio. But 
when I know for a fact so many bands will go into studios and say, you know, what should we bring? And and the producer engineer will say, don't worry about it. I have, I have it all covered. I have my go-tos. Mm-hmm. I will never, ever say that. I want to record any, as many different things as I can because I want it to sound like them. And if that stuff isn't cutting it, then I'll go to my stuff because I know what works and what doesn't. However, I want it to sound like them. And I want, I want it to have, like I said, a sonic footprint of their band, of that record, of this moment in time, and not rely on a template, not rely on the same drum, drum samples, you know, the same presets on, on guitar amps and, and all that crap. So I think, uh, mm-hmm. I think a huge part of it is I, I, I would bring creativity and getting, um, you know, that, that Curses record that I, that I was talking about. I tried, I, I'm really big on like huge sounding drums. Like I, I always love a lot of rooms, like a, a hell of a lot of rooms and a lot of real. I, I don't like relying on drum samples. I love just tuning and tuning and tuning and trying different drums until it sounds exactly right before it hits a microphone. What I tried to do with that Curses record, because they were pretty different, was make the drums fit the song, like not cut any corners, like make it sound exactly what I'm hearing in my head. And that was like Block Party. Do you, have you ever... Yeah, 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 one of my favorite bands yeah, ever. Yeah, so, so Silent Alarm... Um, Block Party mm. is like one, to me one of the most influential records production wise because it's so opposite of everything I do typically. It's like it's just like the drums sound like no transient. There's no rooms. You 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 know the story of that. Too, I don't. Right? What story? Uh, the way I was told it was that everything on that record except the drums are recorded through a fifty-seven and a four fourteen on a digital. Wow, tree. that would make so much sense. <laughs> But, you know, then they have, what was that, Jackknife? Uh, I can't think of his last name. But, you know, that guy can mix pretty much anything. Like, he was kind of the guy of the moment that was making, like, the worst recorded, yeah. you know, the, the Pro Tools era of, like, bands just buying Pro Tools. He could make any record sound pretty fantastic. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, that's what I heard. I, you know, I've never fact-checked that, but that was the story at the time. When it would make a out. ton of sense because... When you yeah. listen to that, you could think that everything, even the drums, were recorded on uh, 50 seconds. It did you too, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, for a lot of it, I used, you know, we put t-shirts on every drum and wallets and that kind of stuff. And I drove every preamp to the, like, just destroyed every preamp. Bleed in everything. And it, it just came out sort of block party E and killed all the reverb, killed all the rooms, and I would never have done that. And and I think uh, taking risks is a huge thing nowadays that a lot of producer engineers don't want to do because they've found success in a certain area. You know, this is what works for me. These drum samples I'm comfortable with. These This miking setup, using these mics, using these, you know, putting it in this part of the room, doing all that stuff they're comfortable with and they don't want to take a risk. And yeah, it might flop a little bit, but you tried something different and I think there's a ton of respect and a ton of acknowledgement people will, will, will see, um, when you, when you try something like that and, uh, and yeah, so that, yeah, that's anyways, it's very convoluted. No, 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 but that's a, that's a really insightful answer. What's a common mistake you say bands do before getting, Oh man, do you have, (laughs) Hours? <laughs> I think I think we got about forty five minutes. <laughs> All right, I hope this is the last question then. Okay, so I would say a huge thing is not knowing their own songs inside and out, or not even having the song complete. You're you're going to a recording studio that you're paying money for, and you're hiring a producer to make your completed song better. You better come in with a completed song. Do you know what I mean? However, if it was predetermined that I'm going to do more for, for the songs to begin with, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help write, and I'm going to help you know, take in just a, a simple idea and make it into a song, then that's a different story. But when a band's like, yeah, I have, you know, we have five songs, and they're, they're done and whatever, and they show up, and the songs are five minutes long, and they have you know, four verses and, and an intro that lasts, you know, the chorus doesn't get in until two minutes into the song. And that's, I mean, 
it's just sort of, you know, trim, trim something, trim some fat before coming to the studio. So I would say, yeah, or, I mean, what I said before, not knowing their own songs and not knowing their own parts and each other's parts. I think that's a huge thing. I was recording a band and they didn't know who played what, what guitarist played what part. And, you know, and I, I can't begin to describe the amount of times I've heard, I've always played that. What are you talking about? I play that every practice. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think most people who listen to music don't realize that, like, if you're a producer, it's like, if you go a week without hearing that, it's a great week. Absolutely. Another thing is coming to the studio with your, your instruments not maintained and set up. Intonation, if, you, if your guitars aren't intonated, you, you're not going to record. Or you're going to have tuning, or you're going to make the recording process a nightmare. Yeah, you, you can literally add on twice the studio bill if you haven't set up better than $40 to set yeah, up. Yeah, absolutely. Car. And it's going to go way smoother and everything is going to sound good instead of, hmm, do you hear that? Is Do you hear like a tuning thing? Oh, I'm not sure. Yeah, no, I think it sounds fine. No, I think it's not out of tune. So once you actually realize and everybody's on the same page that it's not in tune, then you actually have to go and fix it and punch every chord. So that's a huge thing. And I mean, on the same token, drums is the exact same way get i mean you're, you're going to come to the studio with new strings yes and you're going to bring a bunch of new strings why don't you do the same treatment for for drums bring new drum heads maybe bring an extra set of drum heads that's exactly like strings on a guitar the, the things get old and, and they sound worse most of the time and, and you play them super loud and and hard and smash the hell out of them they're going to lose tone and uh unless you like that sound and unless it, you're going for a block party kind of thing but, uh, yeah, I mean, showing up with broken symbols, um, showing up with half-written lyrics and melodies, you know, going, literally going to record the song and saying, well, okay, so I don't really have this part, but, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, Not so much. Or, you know what, here's, here's another thing, an interesting thing. Having it written, but never having sang or played it uh -huh. um, or, you know, practiced it. Because I think that that's a big thing now in the garage band era of ba like it's great bands are using DAWs, but then the problem is is that they're using DAWs, and uh, then they're like, oh, the song's written, but it's like, yeah, well, now you need to rehearse. Right. It. Even if even if it's like you know every all the instruments are written, and then you have a vocalist who's who's fairly shy or who's late on writing the vocals, and they show up to to sing it. And they're like, oh, yeah, this is extremely high or this is extremely mm -hmm. boring because it's not high enough. Um, I just did a record where they had recorded a full length and had to re-record guitars, bass, and vocals for two songs because uh, the singer went to sing it <clears throat> and it wasn't in her range at all. And so we had to re-record. Well, I, I didn't do the, the, the record, but I did the, the re-recording stuff um, because it wasn't in her range. And because she hadn't practiced it, but if she had, you know, had it written beforehand or practiced it, she would have figured that out or done it in, in pre-pro. Yeah. Had the songs done in pre-pro, it's you know what? It's okay to come to pre-production with the song is not complete, but to record it for real, I think they should be done. And I think that's obviously a part of the producer to make sure it's done. But there's only so much they can do. I think. Agreed. Wait, you know what? I have one more point. Um, yeah, a yeah, huge thing is not wanting to be open-minded that's one of the mm. biggest things actually not yep. wanting to be open-minded not so go deeper yeah not accept uh not wanting to accept any changes again i'm going back to why did you hire me if you're not going to be open open-minded you can basically just hire an engineer and i can press record because you you came to me for the the records that i've done or for whatever you've heard that i've done and that's been a lot of a lot of dissecting has, has gone into that and the songs that you that you heard, you know, it wasn't just the band showed up and played them and I pressed record and set up mics. I did a lot of, you know, delving deeply into their performance, into pushing them harder than they would accept that they can go, and suggesting things that they that, that are out of outside of their box, outside of their, you know, well the, these bands kinda only stick with these chords, so I feel like this is this is pretty. You know, we have these songs with these chords, so that's it sounds pretty solid. I know, but maybe try this weird minor chord, and maybe try this like 
stupid lead up here because listen to what it does for the excitement of that part. You know, but I want to just trust me. <laughs> you know, I think that's a, that's a huge thing. I agree. That's a, that, that, I think that makes a big difference in records. What's a smart thing you see bands do during the process? I would say not asking what the Wi-Fi password is. <laughs> I like that. Showing up and focusing. Um, a lot of times bands are having too good of a time, which is awesome, and the vibe is cool, but you're here to be creative and, and make a record. You're not here to just sit on your phone the whole time. And, and I understand that you know, it can get boring sometimes when you obviously don't have any part in a certain certain member's parts or whatever. But you should be concentrating and you should be learning what learning what they're playing, learning what suggestions I'm making and, and, and taking from the experience. You're only in the studio, you know, a couple times a year or once a year or not even. Learn from the experience. Take the most from it what you can. Yeah, I would say that that's a huge thing. I think I think you're making a great point that should be be exploded a little bit more, which is that one of the biggest times that you will grow as a musician and you will learn the most is when you are in the studio. If you actually keep your head in the game and pay attention, and so many bands don't take advantage of that opportunity for growth. Right, absolutely. I mean, you're coming, you're you're hiring somebody, you're trusting somebody with thousands of dollars a lot of the time to make your music better. Why don't you? Check out how that's happening. A good, another good thing is um, telling me that they have more options for parts. Mm-hmm. Oh Instead yeah. Instead of just being like, "This is the song. This is the only. Th- these are the only melodies. These are the only lyrics." Being like, you know, if I'm like, "Oh well, um, this part seems a little whatever," if a band's like, "Oh well, I, I have this other part, or I have this other thing that you know I want to try, or whatever," the more engaging the artist and I can be, the more creativity flows the more ideas happen and the more cool things you'll come up with together i I think that's an awesome point so tell me about what happens when you and a band disagree about something uh typically we work it out i mean at, at the end of the day it's it's their song they've hired me to make their song better but at at this on the same token I'm sort of, I'm the outside ear here. And let's go back to, you can only hear something for the first time once. And I'm, I'm a trusted person to hear the, the song for the first time. And uh, if something sticks out at me, there's a reason for it. And they should trust that. However, it often happens that a band's super, super, you know, just sold on something they've, they've written. And that's totally cool. That's, it's their song at the end of the day. But, you know, they're hiring me to make it better and you know for lack of a better term so but it typically it doesn't get to you know it doesn't get too heated or, or anything i'll just explain that and i'll i'll literally say exactly what i just said um look you guys are here for for my opinion as well as to record it but uh yeah it's yeah it's it's never anything crazy it's just we work it out nice so we have some rapid-fire questions about some of the more modern production techniques and how they have a role in your productions. Amp simulators, do they have a role in your production? Rarely. On on base, typically base DI, if it needs some grit, or if I didn't do a great job nailing the tone on a guitar thing, and I'll add an amp sim. I'll never replace, ever. Gotcha. So you're keeping a DI on the side just in case. I always have a, a DI going going in as well, yeah. And I rarely reamp, only if I'm like, yeah, I really screwed up that first time. Gotcha. How about sample drums? You were kind of talking about how you don't like to rely on that. No, so I just where don't, I don't rely on it. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean I don't use them. Mm-hmm. I get the drums as good as I possibly can, and not only the drums themselves, but the player. Um, I pl- I make the drummer play exactly how I know they'll translate the best on recording. A drum wants to be hit a certain way. I'm personally not a fan of rim shotting. I, I never have. I think for live it works. It's super loud. But I don't think it makes the drum sound like a drum wants to sound. I think it should be hit right in the middle and without a, without a rim, rim shot. I think you lose a lot of body and, and a lot of drummers who haven't been in the studio a lot don't really realize that they just hear it live and they're like, "Whoa, that's way louder! I want to be louder." So yeah, so I make them just as much as tuning. I spend just as much time on making the drummer hit it exactly how it should be hit. And typically, you know, sometimes I've been doing more records um, lately. 
releasing it without any drum samples because I, I feel like the song is it's more intimate. It's more it's more real. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean I don't use them. Nice. How about pitch correction? Definitely use it. <laughs> nice. Yeah, there's only so so many singers who can um, this day and age use you know record without pitch correction. I still make it extremely not inaudible. I guess I would say, but uh, yeah, I use it for sure. Do you master your own records? I used to. Um, I don't trust myself anymore. So I don't want to take something that I've spent you know, a hundred hours on and then ruin it in the very last stage because I don't, because I want an extra however many dollars. So I've found a really, really good guy, John Niclario from Nata Recording in New Windsor, New York, who masters everything I do because he's awesome. He's amazing at it. He's crazy cheap and he's crazy fast and he's the nicest dude in the industry. There's a little shout out for him. <laughs> nice. How long do you like to take to work on a song? doesn't really matter until it sounds like it should. So that could mean it could be mixed within the next day, or it could mean I'm pulling my hair out three months later, still not getting the snare to sit how I want it to. It's Yeah, it, it's all project dependent. Typically, it's just how good the song is, really. If it's a great song, it'll mix itself. It, if it's not... Or if it's you know, or if we had a, some troubles in the uh, in the studio, um, agreeing on how many layers or how you know how it should be recorded or whatever. Typically, it'll be a little tougher to finish. But on average, I would say tracking a song would be on average a day and a half, and you know, doing editing a few hours, four hours maybe drum vocal guitar edits again it's yeah this is average and then mixing four or five hours total yeah cool tell me about one of the best moments you've had in the studio probably when i was working with intuit over it and they were on tour so it was like a this was like a day off and it was it was sort of a fast thing they wanted to get two songs done in a day and i was like okay you can probably do that because you're intuit over it and of course, they you know one or two or three taked everything, and we're doing you know rarely punching in, just going just doing the whole song, or and it was going really well. And then I have a, obviously I'm a producer, so I have a hard time sitting back and not saying things and uh, not suggesting things. And he had said up front that he wanted to keep it pretty simple, but I just ah, I just needed to you know put my two cents in there, and and I I wasn't really settling on on takes that he was like yeah it felt good. I'd be like, well, I think you can do this better. I think blah, 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 blah. I think maybe it'd be really cool to add a harmony here or, you know, do some ahs here or whatever. And, and I remember I could see him sort of getting not like frustrated, but almost more like, <sighs> I said, I wanted to keep the simple kind of thing, but he was, it was kind of like a, like a giggly kind of thing. And um, after we were both happy with, you know, all the layers and the performance and stuff, one of the guys in the band said behind me, Evan, I think this is the first time or, or the most you've ever been challenged in a studio. And everybody laughed and I was like, that is like the coolest thing I've ever heard. You know what I mean? Because this is a, a pretty a pretty well known musician and a very accomplished musician and, and I know how, how well this guy knows music and how many times he's been in the studio and for for me to hear that, you know, he was cha- I, I challenged him in a good way and got more out of it, I love that. That was that was pretty awesome. That's pretty yeah. rad. Tell me about one of the worst moments you had and what you learned. Probably um, when a band I was recording showed up to to track drums with every single cymbal broken, <laughs> every single one. And I'm pretty sure, and it was like a, it was a metal band, so they had a, a ton of cymbals. I think it was like seven cymbals or something. And I was like, "There's no way we can record." And that was after actually that was after postponing the drum session because they they were so unrehearsed and they were so their songs were so all over the place and and I was like we we can't record this now I need to basically so I just st- stood in the room while they practiced and basically conducted their practice and and got them tighter and got them knowing their songs better and uh and then they yeah and then they showed up to drums with every cymbal broken and I was like I can't record this you I, I would advise you to go rent symbols, and this was actually a really funny thing. They went to rent the symbols and came back with seven brand new symbols that they just purchased, not mm. just rented. They 
bought $800 worth of symbols. So not seven, but it was, yeah, I think it was like four or five new symbols. And I was like, okay, that kind of makes up for it. That was kind of a cool, not sure where you got that money from, but um, yeah. And it was like doing pre-production. I'm pretty sure, you know, they were, their leads, we went to do leads and um, their leads were like out of, like not in the, the same key as the rest of the song. It was like, it was like they wrote a lead and they were like, oh, this sounds great on its own. Let's put it on this part. And didn't really, had never heard it recorded, uh, heard it recorded or had never, you know, in practice, I'm sure they're practicing in a basement where they can't hear anything. And I was like, this isn't in the, like it has to be transposed. So then they'd have to learn it transposed. And uh, yeah. And couldn't. That doesn't sound oh, man. And, t- and doing scratch guitars took, I'm pretty sure it was like, Two hours per song doing scratch guitars, even writing the t- uh, writing the tempo maps in Pro Tools, just because they didn't know their own time signatures or, or you know, tempos or yeah, man, that was that was fun. <laughs> That's, yeah, that doesn't sound yeah. fun. Um, tell me about a record that you did that changed your life. Uh, I would say probably Hoser by Seaway, the full, their full, first full length. I, I took a pretty big pay cut on that record because I believed in them and and I knew that they would probably blow up and and uh, and I did it as an investment and I, I didn't mix that record I just produced and, and engineered it but uh, but yeah it, it it got me a lot of work and a lot of publicity so yeah nice what's a perfect record that someone else has done and what makes it perfect I would say one that is timeless one that is still great every single time you listen to it and after 20 years of hearing it. One that starts a trend, one that is different from every other record in the world. It, it sounds like itself. It doesn't sound like any other records. The production is one of a kind. The songs are one of a kind. And it, yeah, it's, yeah, I, yeah, I would say one that just stands out and one that starts, one that is the first to do what it did, I think. That would sum it up. Nice. I really like that answer. Uh, a lot of people point to a record, and I, I think that that was a way better way of answering that oh, question. asking for um, one. Yeah, well, I, I like that you took it that way, because that was a way better oh, answer. Cool. So so we're going we're gonna to sure. put it there. Uh, tell me about five of your favorite records and how they uh, affected your musical growth. I would say Futures by Jimmy Eat World. However, Bleed American and Chase's Light could easily, I mean, and Clarity, could, could any of those could be that record. They're all pretty unreal. They're, Jimmy World is probably my biggest musical influence ever. The musicality, and if you listen past their singles and actually get their records, it is just mind-blowing how much their music can like touch you. I mean, maybe it's just me and maybe you know, some of my friends, because obviously music makes uh, different people feel different ways. But yeah, those those records, that band in particular is just... I mean, Jim Adkins is one of my, one of my biggest idols and influences another one is actually this is actually a a fairly new band a band called now now they put out a record called threads in 2012 really really cool doesn't sound really like anything else no like i can't i can't think of any other bands that sound like this band uh the closest probably would be like a a super mellow and like weird taken in sarah (laughs) but uh yeah that that record definitely sets a tone it sets a mood it like gives you lots of feels and uh that would be my i mean i'm not going to go in order here but that would be another sure yeah again silent alarm from block party i kind of went over what that does for me it 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 broke a lot of rules i think sound it kind of sounds like crap in the best possible way if that makes any sense. You wonder if it was hi-fi, if it would have spoiled Absolutely. some of the, like, almost garage bandiness of, like, how weird that drummer plays and everything. Yeah. The way it was recorded fits the songs perfectly, and that's weird because it was recorded. I mean, whatever. The production is amazing. Well, it's funny. Like, the next record, it, the re- the drums are so manipulated yeah. to kind of, like, get around that he plays so awkwardly and, like... Yeah. It doesn't quite have the same vibe as that first one, like where it's just so much more this, emotional. Yeah, that record is worlds better than any others. And I would say sometimes, some sometimes things just disappear by Polar Bear Club. I love that record. John DeClario, my mastering guy, did that record. That's actually how we met. Is 
I messaged them because I love that record so much and just wanted to know about it. And, um, and that's how we met. And, um, I, I just, I mean, the, the, the production itself and the, the, um, the mix itself is, it's great. It's not like anything too different, but the songs themselves and the, the vibe I think is, is one of a kind. Um, his voice is just so powerful and, uh, the songs are so different. They're just chord progressions that I, that I would never think of that works so well and going from one part into another and you know he uses sleigh bells in one bridge I'm like sleigh bells it's amazing so I put sleigh bells in stuff now yeah and then um, another one I, I'm not sure I could get a fifth those are my top four for sure and maybe honorable okay. mentions could be like Ocean Avenue by Yellow Card or like I'm gonna bring it back to you know when I was growing up uh, Take Off Your Pants and Jacket by Blank um, and probably In Love and Death by The Use. nice yeah. What's your favorite record of the last year and what inspires you? Um, you know, I would probably say um, I'm actually the worst for just getting into brand new, but I just got into brand new. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would say Devil and God is, is a crazy good record. And again, one that breaks rules and one that it um, doesn't sound like any other record. And yeah, that's and when sure. you, I mean, hearing new music nowadays and not ever being into brand new and then going to brand new, you're like, oh, <laughs> that's what every band is trying to do. I see now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, hearing some of the drum sounds on that record are just mind-blowing. They just sound like you're sitting right in front of the kit. So, yeah, that's really – I'm not, not sure it would make my, my top five, but it's easily – it's my favorite of the past year. Nice. So tell me about what you've been working on lately. So I did that, that Curses record. Um, they're actually in L.A. right now pitching some stuff and, and doing some, some writing, some co-writing, which is pretty cool. Let's see, I, I just did some Bitter Kids stuff, which are um, another band from around here. I think they're from St. Catharines, which is about two hours from Toronto. But they're, yeah, they're sort of in the same, not same genre, but same group of people, I guess. And that record was very like influenced by, on my part, um, John Feldman stuff. I just finished a grungy band, pretty pretty grungy record um, from a band called Gutter. Uh, one I, again, I didn't use any drum samples. It was just like so. I think it was very sort of like Will Yip inspired. And uh, let's see, this band called Go to the West, which actually have some members of Gutter or one member of Gutter, um, which is like super like folk rock, like very almost like tallest man on earth meets like a full band kind of deal. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much. And some other local stuff that um, that I've been working on lately. Cool. And so um, one of the rare things we, we don't usually have is we don't usually have producers who have an active band. You mentioned you have a band. Do you want to tell yeah, us Yeah, sure. So, so my band's called First Ghost. We're sort of like a, it's hard to put a genre on it, but I would say like alternative rock, pop, emo band. I w I've heard tons of times that we don't sound like anything. We just, we have a Jimmy World vibe because I, I think that's mm -hmm. where I get a lot of my influence. But um but we don't sound like any other bands, which I love hearing. We're we're going on a three-day run pretty pretty soon, in about a week actually, with Curses, that, that band I worked with. And, nice. uh, and oh, you know what? I, I, I also worked with, with this band called Breakfast, and they're like, they're like math rock, like almost like a hint of like jazziness, but like just clean guitars noodling the whole time with like almost like soul, like emo soul vocals over top of it no emo soul, so, so, so t t tell us what emo soul is it's i'm like, curious about I, like this. the whole thing sort of sounds emo and he's like sort of like like yelling at, at times but his voice is so good that it has like a a soulful aspect to it and no pitch correction that's one of the ones that i've nice. uh released with no drum samples no pitch pitch correction so it's a very raw thing um, and, and I love that. So the, uh, the singer of that band is in a side project called sex tape, which I'm going to, going to be working on in the new year. Well, which it is, but, uh, yeah, it's like a, a R&B kind of like hip hop, like electronic pop vibe kind of thing. And, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, so the run we're going on is, is curses and sex tape and us. So, yeah, I mean, we're on Facebook. Nice. I don't know. We just did a, a hotline bling cover by Drake. Which was pretty <laughs> <Nice>. funny. <laughs> But the question is, are you going to do the video? We did, we did a video, moves? actually. You can, oh, wow. Yeah, I got like, I don't know, 19,000 views or something in the, in the past month. So that was pretty cool. 
Nice. But uh, it, it not not as quite as uh, elaborate as as his. Not not enough dancing. That's what I was hoping for. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you are unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can be also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going. 